You're listening to All The Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. The house I grew up in was built by my father, and it's beautiful. When my mum got pregnant with me, he started building this two-storey brick house with high ceilings, a big veranda, a leafy backyard, and my mum made these incredible stained glass windows that wrap around the front of the house. The thing is, they never finished building it. For a big chunk of my childhood, my parents climbed a ladder to get to their bedroom on the second floor. To this day, the bathroom still doesn't have a ceiling or a shower screen. The roof isn't even finished, making it the perfect home for pigeons and possums and susceptible to leaks when there's super heavy rain. But still, when I think about the house finally getting finished so my parents can sell this place that they no longer need, I feel a little sad. I love its quirks and its creaks and the visible electrical wiring in the bathroom ceiling. Everywhere I look in that house, I see my parents and I see my little brothers. To be clear, mum and dad, if you're listening, I still think you should sell the house Please don't use my feelings as an excuse. Maybe just keep one of the stained glass windows. This week's episode is about the buildings we call home and the people who make them feel that way. In our first story, Tian and her family say goodbye to the house that's been theirs for almost 30 years. This is, sorry, was my family home. It was sold a few months ago when my parents split. A beautiful old bungalow in the bustling beachside suburb, Glenelg South. High ceilings, worn-in timber floorboards, smooth, solid brick walls. There was a sparkly golden light that shone through the side windows in the afternoon. There was the sound of families on their way to the beach. And in my mind, I could always smell freshly baked bread from the bread cooker. I'm almost 30, and I haven't lived here for probably 10 years. But I still consider this my home. Since moving out, I've always lived close by, dropping in to pick up my mail, which I'd never bothered to redirect that old uni textbook, or my spare set of keys. We had family Sunday night dinners, and I'd occasionally still have sleepovers when my partner was away. This house, 33 Broadway, has always been the constant in my life. Every other house since has been just that, a house temporary and lacking any real connection. Saying goodbye got me thinking, what made this place so special? What made this house a home? And now that it's gone, is home lost forever? I decided to ask my family about the house and their memories of it. (laughs) Is it recording? Yeah. 
bring the drink to the closer. You can have a drink and stuff, it's fine. So you're nervous too, aren't you? No, I'm just <laughs> no. <laughs> you are. This is my mum, Chris. I remember Hayley's engagement party. Oh my God, that was the best party ever. Yeah, I remember. And this is my dad, Lawrence. Yeah, and just I interviewed yeah. them separately. That beautiful kitchen, I think that's probably one of the things that the aspects of it that I'd always remember is to be in the back garden, looking back into the into the house, uh, and the yeah, the lighting and the pictures on the wall, and that that sort of sunset time, uh, twilight time, that warm feeling that the house gave. I think I'll always remember that, and then the sounds of everybody there and the music sitting around the dinner table. Yeah, memories. I definitely always have a lot. I remember when you um, had a, you used to do lemonade stalls and do little uh, garage sales out by the front front gate, and you sold all your Barbies. That was really, that was really cute. Oh, and then we used to go out in the back laneway and do hot marshmallows. We used to get a little fire going in the back laneway. We used to toast marshmallows and have story time and. It was great, wasn't it? Mm. Used to ring the dinner bell when you used to have to come in for dinner because you'd be playing in the laneway with the kids over the back. Although actually, now now that I recall about the TV room, I do... This is my older sister, Hayley. I, I can distinctively remember the sound of your feet running up and down the hallway in the ad breaks <laughs> of a TV show to, like, go get a packet of tiny teddies from the, the kitchen and then running back up the hallway back to the TV room. <laughs> I miss the familiarity of going to a cupboard and knowing where everything is and I'd just hearing the neighbours or just everything, just knowing where all the light switches are and, you know, the little creaks in the floorboards and I just the smells of the house and the garden and the just being able to walk up to the shops and see Dennis the butcher or just walking out the front gate and you see all these people that you know and you know it's a sense of community that I think you miss more than anything. It was all of these things, the familiar, the light at certain times, the smells, the sounds, the moments. I remember when mum and dad would have dinner parties and I'd have to go to bed. I'd love listening to the music and laughter as I trailed off to sleep. I remember grabbing a meat tenderizer, which looked a lot like a hammer, and I sat on the parquetry floor, banging divots into it. I remember climbing the twisted old plum tree in the backyard to pick the sweet, deep purple fruit, plum juice running down my chin and staining my clothes. And that oak tree. I guess we had so many different Christmases and um, birthday parties in that back garden under uh, what, what was a, a growing oak tree that um, Haley had planted. There was a really big oak tree in Gran's house and I'd 
you know, as we always do, went fossicking out in the backyard and I'd collected up all of the acorns from under the tree and brought them home and I must have thought it would be a really fun idea just to, like, put them in the ground and, and grow them all. Um, and so, yeah, for as long as I can remember, we've had this big oak tree that was the the baby sister of the one from Gran's house. So, But, um, yeah, no, I think it's it's definitely a nice thing because you just... Like, obviously, we were observing, watching it grow the whole time we were there, but I guess it was also watching us grow the whole time that we were in the house as well, so it's pretty nice. It's funny, when I asked my family about the house, we all seemed to come up with similar stories. Stories of us, our family, our friends, neighbours, the community, the memories, the moments in time. We weren't talking so much of the house itself, but the stage it provided for all of those wonderful years, all of the wonderful memories. I think I realised that, you know, it wasn't so much the house, the fabric of the house itself, it was what existed in that space. It was what, uh, you know, what happened there and what the conversation, the music, uh, the smells. I suppose it's what, when you lose someone, you know, passes, it's the same thing. It's, you know, you've still got the shell of the person, but the actual soul and heart of a person's gone. It's, It's the same as the house, you know, you've got that you know, all those cherished memories and, you know, a house is, it breathes and it's got life in it when there's, whether good times or bad times, there's that soul in it. There's this quote from the movie Garden State by Zach Braff. In it, his character says, you won't ever have this feeling again until you create a new idea of home for yourself. You know, for your kids. For the family you start. It's like a cycle or something. I don't know, but I miss the idea of it, you know? I feel that. And then he says, maybe that's all family really is. A group of people that miss the same imaginary place. Maybe it's time, time to create my own version of 33 Broadway. That story was produced by Tian Cook. Eugenia Zubchenko was the supervising producer. 
You're listening to All The Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. Rawa sometimes wonders if her neighbours think her family is a cult. In our next story, she tells us how she survives as an introvert in her big, extroverted Lebanese family. I lie on the lush, cold grass. It's familiar and safe, a sensation I have found difficult to retrieve in my adult years. The afternoon rays of light break through the grove of trees as the sound of birds sipping softly and hanging fruit creates a soothing hum. The grass is long enough for me to fade away to watch my own private slideshow of morphing clouds. I feel the damp earth beneath me, breathe in the fresh air that flows freely into my lungs. Nostalgia for a simpler time of making up storylines of dancing bears and fire-breathing dragons high up in the sky. What I yearn for is a place of uninterrupted peace. Somehow this is more than memory, it is home. As I close my eyes and take a few deep breaths, I feel my body become enveloped by a sudden pressure. Is it my anxiety ruining any moment of restfulness? Or is it my mind sifting through a collection of unwanted thoughts and memories? No, no, it can't be. For just a microsecond, I've slipped into a daydream. In my household, this means breaking rule number three. Never let your guard down and expose any form of vulnerability. This can only result in one of the following outcomes. One, texture marks drawn all over your face. Two, unflattering footage of your double chin and saliva dribbling down the side of your mouth sent to every WhatsApp group known to mankind. Three, or in this case, being wrapped in a hasido, a straw mat, by your four brothers until you feel suffocated and yell for your parents to come to the rescue. I tumble out onto a pile of raked leaves, still in a daze, trying to figure out what dead insect taste is now in my mouth. You know the rules, sis, they say, walking away and high-fiving each other as if they've just wrapped up a hard day's work. How could I forget the rules? I put them in place in my very own Introvert's Guide to Surviving an Arab Family of Extroverts. It's not a document that anyone can see or get hold of. Rather, it's the way I've broken things down to guide me and my anxiety along. The extroverts are a loud, 25-strong Lebanese clan, all of us living in three houses, side by side, on the same street in Punchbowl, southwestern Sydney, roaming freely onto each other's properties with detached fences and no clear borders. I hear my mother calling my name in the distance. Ethnic parents never tell you what they want when they call your name. To find out, you have to make a journey across the house and it usually ends up being a WhatsApp-related chore. It's either re-explaining the process of adding a new number to my mother's long list of friends longer than my own, or watching a video of some Egyptian doctor listing all the health benefits of cabbage. Yes, mama, I say, pulling out the last bits of twig from her hair. You showed me this last week. No, that was about lettuce. Rule number two. 
parents are always right. When the video finishes playing, my dad calls for a family meeting. We sit under our vine leaf pergola and await the list of Sunday duties my parents have prepared for us. The olives need picking from our trees. Don't pick and throw them on each other, Dad says, and he stares blankly at his four grown sons who begin to argue about who started it first for the next 20 minutes. My two older sisters also chime in, spreading the blame, and my uncle, for whatever reason, is making rice pudding in our garage kitchen. My nieces and nephews each try to sneak away from their responsibilities, and before I know it, the few brain cells that I have left wander off to the vine leaves up above and intertwine with the leaves. Rule number five, don't involve yourself in conversations that don't concern you. It doesn't take long for my mum to turn on the hose and threaten to soak everyone and wash away their attitude if we don't get to work. We lay out the straw mat beneath the row of olive trees and pick enough olives to last us through the next year. My brothers are responsible for picking the olives, which is done in one of three ways. Shake the trees till the olives fall and land on the mat. Use a rake to collect the top olives. Or climb the trees and handpick them, which isn't always the best idea since it turns into a who can pelt each other the hardest without getting caught by dad contest. The kids run around and find the olives that have rolled off the map and then deliver the boxes to my sisters and me. We are stationed at the cracking and packing tables. Each olive needs to be carefully hit and then placed in buckets. Then my mother brines and stores them in the garage kitchen. Our family circus is always interrupted by a few neighbours who pop in and help out. I can sense what they're going to ask me. I turn to my sisters, who are both a decade older than me, both married with children, and whisper a countdown. And in three, two, one. So, I see you still haven't found Mr. Wright yet, one lady asks. I pretend to lose the ability to speak Arabic and continue to bang the olives, only this time more loudly. She gets the point and moves on to her next target, my three single brothers who are now running around shirtless in the yard. We don't have one of those backyards from a Better Homes and Gardens magazine with flat lawns and tools kept safely in a shed. Everything in our yard can kill you. The axe left lying beside the fragile stack of logs near my mum's spiky green plants, grassy potholes alongside the dented fence and the bucket of pegs on our clothesline that my brothers swing at me, aiming for my head. Our family arrangement is broken up into three houses. House A, the family headquarters, is where we eat, where we grow our vegetables and where we meet to discuss agenda items on the family's list of your business is now my business. It's also the place where our fruit trees grow, fig, mulberry, mango, laquat, orange, lemon, plum, mandarin and almond. These attract people from all over the neighbourhood, each with their own bag ready to raid the fruit. House B is mostly for recreational purposes, either for the children playing on the outdoor equipment or our very own weekly tournaments of table tennis. There's also a basketball ring where we shoot hoops in games of around the world or 21 that always ends up in an argument about someone cheating. We have an outdoor gym where my family works out and for some reason it always sounds like someone is dying there. The grunty can be heard from the end of the street. House C is our own mini supermarket where we stock our endless amount of snacks, as well as the place where we store most of the unnecessary items we hoard from the Sunday markets. I grew up with a big family and we did everything together. 
I thought this was normal until I went to university and found out that most people visit family over the holidays and move out of home when they turn 18. I was still climbing trees and figure out how to offer tea to our guests without burning them. Our home was a secluded wonderland and I didn't feel the need to leave the house to be entertained. My parents encouraged freedom of expression, which my siblings took advantage of. To spray paint our garage doors, or to use plastic sheets for a slip and slide with morning fresh detergent, or to use a frisbee to throw between the houses. We had everything we needed. Why would we ever leave the house? Oh, I just got it. Well played, mum and dad. To the regular human or the nosy neighbour hiding behind their towels in the flats, our family might seem like a little cult, hidden in plain sight from the rest of the world. In modern English, the term cult has come to refer to a relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or as imposing excessive control over its members. I stumbled across this realisation that I could be in what others might see as a modern-day cult whilst watching a YouTube video about the best and worst X Factor auditions. One of the contestants grew up in what she called a strict cult-like family where she described her freedom as something her parents controlled and that her choices always had to be family approved. She wasn't allowed to come and go as she pleased and had to ask for permission to have friends over. Wait, what? If that's the criteria of being in a cult, then every single Arab on earth is raised in one. We sign over our rights to trivial things like choices and freedom when we're born. If I was on X Factor, my audition tape would go something like this. Hi, my name is Rawa, and these are my parents, Matt and Lucy. I thought it'd be funny to use white names. I've brought all 25 of my family members, including my uncle and his two wives, the three neighbours and their dog Clifford. Rule number six. If you can't beat them, join them. Growing up, I felt like I couldn't love or be proud of Punchbowl. I thought that living in Western Sydney was always going to be second best. It was in the constant news reports with people of Middle Eastern appearance in handcuffs. It was in the way outsiders snobbishly smiled and stared at my family as we ate ice cream at the beach. It was in school excursions at suburbs that were outside of my bubble and in job interviews that required a certain look. It's no wonder why my parents created a blissful utopia in our backyard. Being alone with my thoughts now and then has helped me face the harsh realities that lie outside my front door. This is why I created the survival guide for an introvert in a world of extroverts. Choosing where to live has a profound effect not only on your relationships, but also on employment opportunities and education. That's if you have the luxury of options and choices, something most migrants like my parents didn't have. My father came to Australia with $50 in his pocket, which he borrowed from his cousin, and settled in a small house, the one in which he and my mother birthed seven children. He is a gifted storyteller, and it was only when he shared with me some experiences of his life, a life I often forget he had in a small village in Lebanon, that I began to appreciate Punchbowl. I can't help but think of the African proverb about needing a whole village to raise a child. My mind scrambles through a reel of memories. The supermarket men who helped my mum with the groceries to the pharmacist who made me see the importance of remembering someone's name. The baker taught me how a smile can make someone feel special. The owner of the chicken shop showed me what remembering a person's order can do, especially after a hard day's work. But perhaps the biggest lesson was from the coffee-drinking men who told me stories of my father. There was his charity work to support struggling families, or the fact that he was one of the first Muslims to enter politics. Though not elected, it's still an achievement for someone that came to Australia with just $50. Generosity and hospitality come with the territory. 
I now understand that place isn't about what other people think or feel about my home. Rather, it's about what I believe and how I see myself. I lie back on the lush cold grass. I take in the fresh air. The clouds morph to fit my imagination. All is good in the world. Rule number one, take a deep breath and pray. That story was written by Rawa Aja and produced by Catriona Menzies-Pike and Alison Chan. The sound designer was Alina Godwin. This story was first heard on the Sydney Review of Books podcast. You can read Rawa's essay and more at sydneyreviewofbooks.com. All the Best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Boonwurrung lands and ACCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. This episode was mixed and compiled by Josh McKay. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Angela Moran are our social media producers. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Maddie McQueen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>